Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, and I am, as always, your devoted host. Um, today we'll be speaking with Leo Bersani uh, about his book, uh, co-authored with Adam Phillips, um, the title of which is Intimacies, published by the University of Chicago Press. Um, before I list uh, Bersani's uh, many uh, publications and um, uh, academic positions, I just want to say I know we've had a long hiatus here, and I've been uh, away from the listeners, um, but I'm back. I had to do a um, case presentation, and it took several months to uh, prepare for it in my uh, analytic institute, but that's done. So today, um, we get to listen uh, to and speak with Leo Bersani. Um, so Bersani was the chair of the French department at UC Berkeley for many, many years, and he's also uh, taught at Harvard, Northwestern, and he's currently um, ensconced at Princeton, uh, where he's a visiting professor of English, French, and Italian for this year. His many books include The Freudian Body, The Culture of Redemption, Homos, Is the Rectum a Grave, and Other Essays, Caravaggio's Secrets, Arts of Impoverishment, Beckett, Rothko, Resnay, and the last uh, two books were co-authored with um, Ulysse, I hope I'm saying this correctly, Dutois, and um, of course now we have Intimacies, co-authored with uh, Adam Phillips. And um, I guess without further ado, I think we should uh, move forward and listen to this really fascinating interview by an intellectual who's not trained uh, in psychoanalysis, but he sure fooled me. Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. We have with us today Leo Bersani, and uh, we'll be discussing with him his publication, um, Intimacies, uh, a collaboration between himself um, and Adam Phillips, uh, the British psychoanalyst. Uh, Welcome, Leo. Uh, Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed your book, and um, you're actually the first... um, non-psychoanalysts that we're interviewing here at New Books in Psychoanalysis, but I've followed your work um, over the years, and you're profoundly influenced by uh, psychoanalytic thinking. Um, in this book, my sense is that it's a, in large part uh, an imagining or a reimagining of a new form of human relating. And I guess to begin, I want to ask you to elucidate for us what that means and how psychoanalysis, how you imagine psychoanalysis uh, might relate to this new formation? Well, it's something I've been interested in in a long, for a long time, and it has to do with uh, trying to reimagine uh, well, what I somewhat heavily call relationality. But, um, uh, and and I've, I've come to think that there's, there's no way in which relationality can be reimagined unless you uh, try to reformulate the terms in which we think of intimacy as the most, uh, well, let's say the most intense form of relations uh, among people. And um, uh, you could say, well, what's wrong with uh, intimacy as we imagine it? But I think both Adam and I and, and several other people actually writing now uh, have begun to feel that um, that there is sort of a, uh, something seriously uh, wrong with the way we think of uh, intimacy and relations, and this is a political question as well as an affective and mm-hmm. and moral question. That it's uh, and I know that uh, and it has to do with um, with a certain uh, a certain assumption that intimacy is very much connected with knowledge of the other person. Uh, The trouble with this is, to put it very uh, schematically, is that intimacies based on knowledge of the other uh, tend to be intimacies uh, in which we want to know as much as possible about the other and which can be, sounds great, but it can easily develop into a paranoid suspicion uh, that the other is holding something back or that the other is different in some way that's threatening to us. This has very obvious political implications in the sense that we feel that any group, ethnic, racial, sexual identity, uh, different from ours, is... 
uh, is a danger. And either we think paranoically about them, they're, you know, they're people that, that threaten us, uh, we tend to want to destroy them, or in intimate love relations, you have something that was best described by Proust, which is that, that love becomes equivalent to a paranoid jealousy. What is it about the other that he or she is withholding from me? Uh, so could you imagine a form of intimacy that's not based on personality, knowledge, and, as Foucault put it, on trying to, uh, to dig out the secret desires of the other? Uh, and I think psychoanalysis is very deeply implicated in this, since traditionally psychoanalysis, or at least the orthodox classical version started by Freud, uh, is a practice in which uh, the analyst presumably helps the patient uh, to know more about himself. And so it is based on knowledge. Of course, it's, uh, we would hope, not based on uh, some kind of paranoid curiosity on the part of the analyst, but it is based on, on knowledge, and that somehow knowledge is the key to uh, the cure. So I think there have been some analysts recently, and Adam is certainly one of them, sort of interested in trying to think a type of psychoanalytic cure that would not be based on knowledge. Uh, it's a big question of what it would be based on, but that's what we were trying to get at in the book. Yes, uh, very much so. I'm, I was thinking in, in my training, um, I'm trained as a modern analyst, so we're drive theorists, um, and we're Freudians, but we are trained to work with... Um, the more um, regressed uh, people in psychotic states, the schizophrenias. And um, we're helped to establish something that's called the narcissistic transference. And um, your book has a lot to say about narcissism, which we'll we'll get to in in a bit. But I'm thinking that we're trained to let this transference go on and on and on, uninterrupted. In this transference, um, we feel like the patient. The analyst feels like the patient. We sort of become them. Uh, as it were. And we feel all kinds of strange things in the consulting room. We feel taken over, invaded, strange sensations. And depending on the patient, we may stay in this state for years. Mm-hmm. And many patients say when they emerge a little bit from this merger that it was this state of being, being with another just like them, or a twin, as it were, that saved them from insanity. We, That's interesting, yeah. Isn't it interesting? I mean, we, we make no interpretations. We don't ask questions of the ego, such as, why did you think that? Right. 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 Ouch, ouch. <laughs> You're hurting me with that question. It's, it's interesting that I, I conduct interviews. I'm really not used to asking um, a hell of a lot of questions, uh, ultimately, at least early in the stage of getting to know someone. Obviously, you're not my patient, but it is it's a strange phenomena for me as an interviewer to ask questions. But we wait to see if the patient wants to have contact with us. To make contact with the patient before it's asked for is understood as uh, sort of following, your, in some ways, your line of thinking. It's sort of an act of violence to, right. in, to right. intrude. So I was drawn to your, your thinking about... Um, how we might develop what uh, a term you call um, impersonal narcissism. Maybe, could you talk to us about your ideas about narcissism and impersonal narcissism? Um, Well, um, I guess, you know, it's uh, it's being in part deliberately provocative to make that kind of uh, uh, connection. Impersonal narcissism sounds, of course, like a contradiction in terms. But we did want to develop an idea that would be different from uh, mirror-like narcissism, mm-hmm. that is, in which you try to see yourself reflected in the other, mm-hmm. uh, in which you try to reduce this other to the, to the self. Uh, this is connected to what I was talking about a little while ago about knowledge. I mean, the, <clears throat> the reduction of the difference in the other to an absolute sameness mm-hmm. with yourself would be that mirror-like narcissism. Right. But what if, what if there was another type of narcissism that was based on some sort of contact um, with yourself in the other mm-hmm. that, uh, that allowed room for the difference of the other? In other words, it would be what I, I keep coming back to this sentence I used, I'm not sure in which book, um, in which uh, difference would be a non-threatening supplement to sameness. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, that the difference in the other would not necessarily be something that has to be destroyed. So what is this sameness? On what level is it? Uh, it's very difficult to describe because it's a sameness that's not based on uh, personality or being like me. Uh, it's a sameness that you sort of discover as what I like to call not personality traits, but a certain type of being, mm-hmm. uh, which you recognize that you share with the other. And that's why the discussion of Plato at the end mm-hmm. is very important, because Plato's notion of love is exactly that you recognize in the other a type of being which he associates with you know, one of the gods, uh, that's a type of, uh, sort of a type of character, a type of being that is recognized in the other and that has very little to do with learning about, uh, uh, the other's personality, that is what, you know, what their desires are. Uh, but rather a certain sort of orientation of being that cuts across and, uh, someone who's talked about this talked about it as a universal singularity, that there might be several different types of singularity that cut across the whole field of the human race and that can intersect in ways that are interesting and that don't involve, it involves exchange rather than knowledge. It involves um, a kind of touching and juxtaposition with the other uh, and it may have something to do with what you were talking about in your uh, in describing your uh, your technique a little, that is in sort of um, being with the other rather than subject object. It's trying to get rid of that dualism of subject and object, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of on the psychological plane, uh, trying to do something which you know Foucault made a very interesting statement that he also was very suspicious of a culture and a philosophy. Uh, based on knowledge and he had the interesting sentence that uh, that he calls uh, in the modern period he associates with Descartes well he calls something the Cartesian moment by which he means the prioritizing of knowledge over what he calls care of the self prioritizing of knowledge means as in Descartes that there's an absolute irreducible duality between the thinking human subject and the world. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can cross that bridge between the self and the world is through appropriative knowledge. That is, if I can get to know as much as possible about what is not me, I will be able to, and he uses this phrase which is extraordinary, master and possess nature. Well, switch that to people. If I will be able to know as much as possible about you, I will be able to master and possess Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the psychology that is the Proustian psychology. You know, I've often said that if Freud could sort of uh, have had a child, that he would have wanted to be the perfect reflection of himself he would have given birth to Proust. (laughs) Because Proust is Freud novelistically transformed. And it's marvelous because it's a whole, uh, you know, it's a whole picture of culture. It's a whole picture of how a culture thinks and how it defines, uh, you know, how you, how you, how you define what is uh, knowable. Mm. what is within the area of the conditions of knowability, what he calls the episteme of a culture. Um. And I think now with people trying to rethink intimacy, there are, you know, there are a lot of people really working on this now. And it's very interesting to me that psychoanalysis, which I think has been very Proustian in the subject-object relation, in you know, the silent analyst, the analyzan, getting digging up all this knowledge, that there's a movement away from that. Uh, Somebody asked Adam in a discussion we had with a group recently, um, you know, well, what do you do? What do you do do in your sessions? You know, if you're not after, you know, what happened in childhood and uh, so forth, what do you do? And he said, I'm sort of interested in, uh, I say things that may 
affect the um, the patient. And it's interesting to try to imagine statements that affect right. without bringing necessarily bringing knowledge. In other words, there's a way in which the analyst can be a somewhat beneficently traumatic presence, uh, can sort of shock the analyst into a kind of, ex- shock the analyst in, into a kind of exchange in which it's not a giving over of my secrets mm-hmm. and a discovery of, oh my God, that's in my unconscious or was, but rather some kind of state of being that you come to share through these affecting statements that mm-hmm. the analyst, we would hope, makes in the course of the treatment. Right, the emotional, the, the emotional communication rather than the investigation. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, there, there, there are a lot of people, uh, what you were saying before uh, interests me when describing the thing you've been working with. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Christopher Bolas. Sure. Uh, but he has this fascinating uh, thing about the relation between the mother and the child. And he makes... He says that what should be interesting to the analyst is, uh, and to the mother is not so much uh, what's the problem, how does the mother get to know the child, and how does the child begin to know the mother? Uh, did I make a mistake in thinking I knew her in a certain way and she really wasn't, or did she fail to know me correctly? And Bowie said there might be a a different way. That might, what might be important would not be so much the mistakes, supposedly, that the mother made in trying to know the child, but would be would have something to do with the way in which she positioned herself with the child in a certain space. There's a certain kind of positioning. And it's very interesting that he compares that, and this is why I think psychoanalysis interests me, because I'm obviously very interested in uh, forms of art. He says that the way the analyst and the way the mother originally positioned herself could be compared to choreography. And he uses the word aesthetic, that it was an aesthetic style of being with the child. If the analyst could reproduce that, that is not so much become the one who knows or who wants to know, but the one who can somehow uh, recreate the positioning of the mother and the child, the positioning in space, which is a very profound, uh, how we are in space in relation to other people is a very profound way of relating. And it's a kind of choreography of intimacy. And I think that that may be more interesting than so-called psychological depths. Right, right. Um, I'm thinking of the idea that perception um, is born. I think this is from Spitz, that uh, feeling um, inform- that the capacity to perceive is in the infant is based on feeling. And the infant feels uh, or perceives with his mouth. You know, it's it's not it's not a it's a it's, and we were talking about the relationship between the mother and the child, and I, that that phrase comes to my mind that the infant perceives with with uh, with her mouth. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very uh, a, di- a different a different way of, of knowing. Um, you have a you have you know in some of the references to the mother. Um, in the book, you know, I, the idea of an impersonal mother um, is is out there in, in psychoanalysis. You know, from from Winnicott on, I mean, people really right. love love this idea. Um, and um, I was thinking, what about? Um, and I think I'm not sure if you raise this or if Adam Phillips raises this. So pardon my confusion, but it's in the book about an impersonal father. Um, do we need an impersonal father? And what what would life be like? Uh, with a father who could also be uh, in the same way as the, the mother is impersonal to the infant and is attending and is, right. you know, right. what, what would happen if we had an impersonal father? Well, that's a fascinating question because I've, 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 been, I've been very interested in that actually. And um, uh, to become more specific about what I was saying, I think a little too generally before, 
I think the model of intimacy in our culture is obviously the family. Right. Uh, and the family uh, is a model, you know, it, it, it extends politically to uh, the father of the nation in many countries, the, uh, the president or is thought of in that way. So that the family is an extremely powerful model. So if the family is an extremely powerful model, then obviously what are the relations between the child and the parents? That becomes a very important question. Right. Well, if you want to talk about the father, it's always seemed to me that the, you know, the really terrible thing that has to be gotten rid of, and psychoanalysis, I think, has been making moves in that direction, uh, is the necessity of seeing the father as the law. Uh, this is very strong in uh, some French psychoanalysis, and yep. uh, as you certainly know, in Lacanian analysis, when you know he's in a fascinating seminar on psychosis, mm -hmm. but uh, but he says very explicitly in that uh, you know that if you don't recognize the law of the father. Well, you're going to have a screwed up life. There's no way in which you can you can not recognize that. So I've been very interested in <clears throat> what about. What about thinking of the father, not in edible terms? I mean, I think the, you know, the, you could say our whole relationality is edible in, in our culture. And that means it has to do with a certain forbidden desire, uh, with giving in to that desire inwardly, but at the same time condemning yourself for it. So you get into a situation which Freud describes beautifully in chapter 7 of Civilization and its Discontents, where you agree to give up what the law is telling you to give up, that is an important part of your desires, but at the same time, you take the law inside, you internalize the law, uh, both in order to obey it and to secretly attack it. So it becomes a kind of impossible situation where the frustration of not being able to fulfill my desires becomes an extraordinary aggressiveness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and hate. And I think that has a lot to do with the kind of, you know, the willingness of human beings over the centuries to kill each other right. and to do it with an ease, you know, as if it goes without saying. <laughs> it's okay to kill hundreds and thousands of people. It doesn't, you know, it's, they're, if they're a threat and... and, and you know, if somebody's pointing a gun at me, then okay, I can understand. But but the reasons we find for killing other people is that, you know, they have another, they have a, a god with another name or something. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's absurd, but it's been going on forever in our culture and in most human cultures. So it's very important to rethink the role of the father, mm -hmm. as you were suggesting. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking, what if the father were there? You need You need a third presence. Let's just say it's it's mainly the father. <clears throat> a student in a course I gave on psychoanalysis and queer theory once said to me, well, I'm not interested in Freud at all because uh, he couldn't imagine uh, a single mother. Uh, and, uh, mm. and, you know, it was all that family stuff. And, you know, I agreed with her in, to a certain extent. But I said, but the greatness of Freud in part is that he realized that there has to be a third presence. Mm -hmm. You know, that you can't r remain in that dyadic one-to-one uh, -one relation, which is, can be ecstatic, but it's also very dangerous with the mother or with the first caregiver, I'd say. Somebody has to come in and say, there are other things. There's a world. You have to turn away from that one other person and toward the world. Well, what if the father did that not as a threat, which is, turn to the world or I'll castrate you. I mean, that's you know, kind of absurdity. That, um, but turn to the world because it has all of these possible other pleasures. Uh, you know, the father is a kind of loving introduction to the world. And <clears throat> I've always thought that in some funny way, but this gets a little too complicated to talk about, that I, and I think less... I think there's less now, but when I wrote Homos, I thought the interest of homosexuality was that in some way it had perhaps uh, changed the, uh, as 
psychoanalysis has always officially said, changed the Oedipal diagram. Mm -hmm. But I was saying that it changed the Oedipal diagram in a way that sort of bypassed the castrating uh, effect of the son-father relation. Uh, that it bypassed it in a way that made a relation uh, to the father, um, sort of paradoxically, uh, more uh, less threatening and more loving. Uh, I know that this sounds uh, weird because the official line in psychoanalysis is that is that homosexuals don't, you know, don't have a relation with the father. But at any rate, it's what if the father were, and then and that made me think of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freud's pre-Oedipal father, you know, which he talks, there's a certain mysterious figure, but where there might be uh, the model for uh, a love of a father that, of course, the infant can't really know, so it is a sort of impersonal father, but it's love without that Oedipal rival castrating threat, Mm -hmm. which I think is at the basis of a lot of violence, Mm -hmm. both interpersonally and internationally. Yeah, it's what makes sexual difference, uh, as we say, we call it a crisis, and uh, it, yeah. it does it does create a crisis of sometimes epic uh, proportions. Um, I was thinking, you know, Phillips, uh, in responding to you, uh, writes, to achieve what Bersani argues, we would have to learn to stop taking sex personally. And I read that, and I said, yeah, oh, God, that is a pretty interesting idea. And I was thinking about in my own consulting room, my gay male patients are much more likely to have achieved this, uh, taking sex uh, uh, less personally than my female patients, regardless of their object choices. I mean, it's to make an overgeneralization, but that seems to be yeah. the case. In fact, many of my female patients will, uh, and friends, uh, you know, will say, I envy gay men their ability to have sex with friends, exes, strangers, et cetera, not, and not to feel the need to turn every sexual experience into a, quote, love relationship. So it got me thinking about is there something that needs to be teased out in your argument? I was wondering how, what does this look like? Um, I, you know, when, when, you're, when you're writing about, you know, uh, barebacking and, and these, communi- these sexual communities of, uh, you know, sort of there's impersonal intimacy, I think, is part of what's being... Uh, discuss there, I was thinking, how, how does this work uh, for a woman? Uh, and I was wondering, is there something gendered in your argument? What would we need to talk about uh, potentially to open it up if, if there is? Because um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, what would it mean if women uh, could stop taking, uh, taking sex personally? We'd have, it would be a very different world, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure that's, um, I'm, well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that it's it's that limited to women. I mean, there may be a different way in which men and women take sex uh, personally, but it's pretty. Uh, I mean, the paranoid suspicions of male jealousy, right. certainly, <laughs> certainly <laughs> taking sex uh, mm-hmm. personally. And I think I think that in a sense, but I, I I feel a woman should talk about this more than. I mean, I'm often asked at the end of the lecture, you know, you haven't said anything about lesbianism. Well, you know, I was at a, a sort of debate with Judith Butler once, and to my great pleasure and surprise, uh, she stood up and said, um, you know, a lot of us are talking about lesbianism. He doesn't have to talk about it. I mean, let everybody talk about what he knows about. <laughs> uh, well, and, and that was interesting to me. But, but I do think that there's a kind of model of um, that, that we might think more about uh, the way Freud described, I won't go into this because obviously it's not relevant nor it's too complicated. The way he described the difference between uh, boys and girls going through the so-called Oedipal stage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some way in which girls somehow missed the, uh, the Oedipal uh, law. And as a result, they don't have a sense of justice. We're pre-Oedipal I mean, forever, right. <laughs> but, but I always thought that's what made in a sense, or should make women morally superior to men. That that they don't have a sense of justice. That justice is a vicious, vengeful concept. Right. You know, and that, and it's based very much as someone I think, uh, John Forrester maybe wrote on envy. Uh, and, um, so there's another, uh, you know, there's an, there's another way of thinking about this, which, uh, but just, uh, 
would you just ask the, the thing that Adam Phillips had said, and I forgot what. To, uh, to achieve what Bersani argues, we would have to learn oh, to sex, stop right, taking right. sex personally. Okay, okay. For a while, I thought the answer to everything, and this was pretty naive, was a kind of uh, transferring from intimate sexual exclusive relations uh, and I made a big case for promiscuity and against monogamy. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way I still feel that. I wrote an essay called Against uh, Monogamy and I still feel that part of our intimacy is um, you know, our, our model of intimacy is based on a model of monogamous desire, which is assumes that there's something so deeply personal in sexuality, that when you find the person you can relate to sexually, that's it. Uh, well, that's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's no one, I mean, very few people have sexual desire uh, that, um, you know, it's going to last with the same person for years and years. So I'm very interested, and, and sexuality, uh, when it's personal, often becomes, as in Proust again, uh, anguished, jealous, unhappy, uh, envious of others, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I think one value of impersonal sex in, let's say, gay male promiscuity is in a certain way it's to disperse the intensity of sexual relations before it becomes appropriative and possessive. Mm-hmm. That there's a kind of dispersal of desire over a larger field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be, and so then you begin to, to, to discover that, for example, I'm very interested in the notion of non-sexual intimacy. And I think that happens very often with couples or, uh, who live together, uh, and, but at a certain point, stop having sex together. Right. And, but have sex with other people, but still have a non-sexual but physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. This interests me very much, and I think there has been certain filmmakers and writers trying to imagine. And, you know, when Foucault said, let's move away from desire, the evil psychoanalytic concept, mm-hmm. uh, to new forms of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Well, what did he mean by that? I mean, he never really developed it. You know, he, he uh, talked about it in an under, underdeveloped way. But I think it's very important that there are, uh, what, what uh, in my work with Ulysse Dutrois and with Adam, mm-hmm. we try to think of sort of kinds of sensuality that are different from pleasure. And they involve touch. They involve proximity. They involve physical closeness. They involve a lot of physicality and sensual pleasure, but it's not necessarily sexual. I mean, there's a way in which we make sex into such an enormous thing, as Foucault says, you know, in the first volume of the history right. of sexuality. Um, but why does it have to be? Why can't it be one element of relations without being necessarily, you know, if, if we have sex, then we're, I think that was what you were referring to when mm-hmm. you were talking, uh, you know, about about. Uh, perhaps women more than men sort of expect a sexual experience to include more than it necessarily has to or perhaps even can include. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about, what about you know, there, and there are very interesting, anybody interested in this idea should look at the films, for example, of Eric Romare, oh, the yeah. French filmmaker. Yeah. <clears throat> What's really interesting, but the characters talk endlessly about love. You know, how can I find, and it's, it's always, it's almost always, focused on a woman. How can I find love? The one love that will make me happy, that will fulfill me forever. Well, it never happens. But what does happen in the film, that the women talking about this develop a kind of closeness to each other, which is not sexual. And, but in a scene, you see two women talking together, and as the talk goes on, which a lot of people find boring, the talk. But as the talk goes on, the women tend to move closer to another, one another and a few times end up sort of uh, embracing while they're talking. Uh, and it's a very interesting image of a kind of intimacy uh, in which they're talking about, you know, how can I find the perfect male sexual partner? Well, what they're doing is actually performing a kind of monosexual 
intimacy that's mm-hmm. not sexual but is physical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd also suggest, if you don't want one other film, the French film by a woman, a straight woman, interestingly, the great filmmaker Claire Denis, in which she wrote about the Foreign Legion. Uh, it's called Beau Travail. Uh, the French, you know, a fine piece of work or a, a, a beautiful piece of work, beau travail. And she did, she somehow manages all of this, um, these relations between, uh, between the legionnaires as a kind of physical intimacy that's not sexual, a sociality among men that mm-hmm. would not be based either on sexual desire mm-hmm. or, as in the case of a lot of straight, well, I'd say even most straight men, right. a kind of competitiveness, a, a potentially violent competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful film. I mean, they sort of do exercises together. And, um, and I thought it's very interesting. It's a straight woman that sort of reimagines for us right. what, what male sociality might be like if it doesn't become, you know, without becoming murderous. Right. Very, uh, those are great. Those are great ideas. You actually write, um, about, uh, tro- uh what is it? Uh, in French trope team, uh, the, uh, intimate strangers, uh, which, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is quite, which is quite a film, right? The a woman walks into a, she goes to see her psychoanalyst, but she ends up in what an accountant's office and they, they yes. speak, they <laughs> speak just, around. they speak just as well. <laughs> They they do she she does very well with the accountant I think um, in many ways. But isn't it, isn't it interesting? And this is a great thing about the potentiality of psychoanalysis. Isn't it interesting that when the director uh, was trying to imagine what um, you know what a situation might be like where you would have a non-sexual intimacy, he created even though it's a false psychoanalytic one, he created something that's like psychoanalysis. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and that's fascinating because it really suggests that psychoanalysis is a non-sexual intimacy and that it has the proximity, it has the closeness. Uh, you know, it doesn't probably have the touch, but it does have a model of closeness without sex, which is extraordinary. And I think in that film, it's marvelous that they go on, even when she discovers that he's not an analyst, they go on having this relationship. They go on talking. That's right. They go on talking, but then she begins to talk about him. Right. So it becomes, you know, it becomes an exchange. Mm-hmm. And American critics, there were a few that dismissed the film. She said, well, you know, they, sh- they should have, when things were, when she got rid of her husband, they should have had sex together. Right. And I think that's a total misunderstanding of the film. Right. I mean, there's no indication that they're ever going to have sex together. But they are going to get together and do a kind of non-psychoanalytic setting version of psychoanalytic intimacy. Let me ask you a question. How did, um, for the listening audience, first I, I, I want people to know that um, when, you be, when uh, Leo begins his portion of this, this book, which I think begins with a preface um, by Adam Phillips, he, he quotes Phillips, and it's a quote that many in the field know, psychoanalysis is about what two people can say to each other if they agree to not have sex. And, uh, and then Leo sets out to, as he's doing with us now, to explore um, uh, a, a lot of, um, uh, it's, a, it's a very generative idea, and, and you, you run very far with it, I think. Um, but I was interested, how did, how did this book come about um, between yourself and, and the, uh, I, the ever-irreverent um, Adam Phillips? How did, how did you two come together to, to, to put this book together? Well, it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I just, uh, I, I, I've, I've seen him recently, and it's just sort of been kind of extraordinary. Several years ago, after I wrote the essay, Is the Rectum a Grave? Adam uh, was not, and this is a long time ago, about 20, 25 years ago. And, that essay and, is 1987, I think, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And it was, uh, I guess, in around uh, 1990 or so. But Adam was sent by, uh, what is it, Channel 4, the British radio station, sort of cultural, does cultural things. And he was sent with... Uh, a producer to interview uh, four or five people in the United States about the relation between psychoanalysis and sexuality. And I was one of the people they interviewed, and I was living at Berkeley at the time, and he came up uh, to the house that I had at, 
beautiful place on top of the Berkeley Hills. And we <laughs> sat all afternoon and talked. Uh, this was, and it was, you know, it came out as an interview on the radio in England later. Um, but there was just something that, you know, that happened. It's an extraordinary way in which, um, again, a kind of impersonal intimacy that just sort of uh, through the ideas mainly, but also something else that's very difficult to describe. I don't know what it is, but uh, something, uh, some kind of sharing of a type of being, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And beginning that we just we began to be friends, and we've had these incredible conversations, even seeing each other maybe only twice a year as he comes over here when, when I'm in London. And at one point he said, well, why don't we just, you know, maybe we could do a book uh, about this. Since I think he was very, he was talking to me mainly about, you know, the development of a form of psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic treatment that would not be centered on the subject-object relation uh, of trying to find out as much to know as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in, uh, in, in this kind of um, an, an, a non-exclusive, uh, non-exclusively desiring intimacy with other people. Mm-hmm. And how the kind of, a kind of, socia- a kind of sexual sociability uh, with, um, you know, I became very interested in, in lots of things that had nothing directly to do with this, such as the sociologist Georg Zimmel, who, you know, at the beginning of the century, I think, of the 20th century, wrote this essay on sociability. Mm-hmm. And he says what's interesting about sociability is people get together in a room, they don't necessarily ask each other what they do, uh, they don't necessarily uh, try to find out. A, uh, they're not there to find out about things, but perfect about the other person. But perfect sociability would be a suspension of personal interest and a sort of use of language and a kind of linguistic exchange that would have to be inventive and sort of invent a relation that doesn't necessarily have to last. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, it's an interesting of sociability is impersonal. Mm-hmm. as an impersonal form of contact. And I wonder whether, and I wrote an essay in which I put together that with the praise of, of promiscuity in gay bathhouses, which now strikes me as a little wild as a juxtaposition. But anyway, I thought there was maybe impersonal sociability in both cases. <laughs> well, you also had a, a, a pretty strong critique of uh, Watney and Weeks and, and the, uh, their idea of a sort of a new democratic ideal, right? And uh, is the rectum a grave? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I thought yeah, was really... I went after them a little too strongly. But I mean, because <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think, you know, the, the, one of the great things about Freud is that no matter how positively you think about all of this, um, there's going to be something intractably negative mm-hmm. and dark about human relations. Right. And I think it does have to do with the fact that uh, we never get over the frustration of desire, which uh, is necessary in infancy. I mean, if our desires weren't somewhat frustrated in infancy, we'd probably all be murderers. I mean, you know, if, if the infant has the physical power, he'd kill those who, you know, who don't you, satisfy you, his desires. I, but you I, never get over that. You, you really sound, uh, it's, it's very pleasurable to talk to you because you sound so much like you're a psychoanalyst in how you speak, and yet your training is, is, uh, is in, in literature, and uh, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, very, it's very enjoyable. But I guess I sort of am having the fantasy, I was like, well, what if you were to train to be an analyst? Where would you train? Like, what kind of, uh, I mean, you, the book seems to me, interestingly, to be a critique of the object relations um, school, yeah. and... I have the idea that, you know, in, that drive theory kind of gives, a, you know, the idea that, that you existed uh, before you had a mother, you know, you existed before this mother. Who were you then? What were your drives? I, I have the idea that, that that would give us the freedom to be, to embrace this impersonal narcissism, that there's more room for it in drive theory. But where would you train? Like, what, what kind of a school would you find, would you be drawn to? Yeah, yeah. I really don't know. I mean, I, I begin, I know very little about, I just know that there are all these 
tools and tendencies and things in psychoanalysis, which, which, which I, I know would drive me to despair if I had to make a choice about them. Um, you know, well, I usually you just French, go where your analyst went. No, but the French, the French, uh, you know, what was, is going on in France interested me and has interested me a great deal. And I got to know one of the Lacanian groups. Well, just to say one of the Lacanian groups, I mean, there are all these groups that can't stand each other. And the difference is, you know what, I, I, I can't. They I haven't mastered impersonal narcissism, Leo, these groups. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not impersonal at all. It's way and what, personal. <laughs> what's very funny about it is, you know, most queer theorists have dismissed psychoanalysis because they think of it in terms of normativity. It's... Psychoanalysis tries to make everybody back and bring everybody back to the normative family heterosexual model. <laughs> well, it's very interesting because... Uh, the critique of certain things uh, that is of you know of, of uh, official identity right. in queer theory appeals very much to yeah. Lacanians. Yeah. So they uh, they're relentless. You know, and I've become very close to them. They've published uh, three of my books, one of these groups, and um, but so, so I'm interested in psychoanalysis. But a lot of my friends aren't, but it doesn't make any difference. The Lacanians tell them you're Lacanian. And they said, what do you mean I'm Lacanian? I can't, I've never read Lacan. I can't that? stand psychoanalysis. It doesn't make any difference. You're Lacanian without knowing Oh, it. they're missionaries, I mean, those Lacanians. Come on. That's a pretty good strategy. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You're so already really, like us. <laughs> I can't answer that question because I don't. The, the schools of psychoanalysis. And, you know, when I go to a conference and, and there was one, a few, I don't know if you were about a couple of months ago that the Lacanian group in New York set up at, uh, at the new school. And yeah. there were some French Lacanians there. And they just stood up and, you know, it's extraordinary how, I wonder whether psychoanalysts have sort of, you know, mostly have faulty treatments uh, <laughs> because they don't realize these three men stood up and they all, each one, they're supposed to ask questions. They're supposed to be a dialogue. Oh, yeah. And they just made speeches. Dialogue takes a lot of ego strength, you know. I know, I know, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you can't, you, you know, t- it takes a 25, 35 years of analysis to strengthen some, some, uh, some egos enough to listen to, to uh, anyone else. It, it's painful, as you write. The different, difference uh, slays us. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, exactly, exactly. Really so, us. at any rate, you're, the school that you come from or what you're doing sounds very interesting to me, but it's certainly... Uh, not typical of my experience. No, either think, either here or in France for different reasons. Sure, yeah. sure. It's 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 quite it's quite different in that I mean because the training is working with the most. I mean, you know, many Lacanians work with with psychotics, although a Lacanian psychotic and a Freudian psychotic are really different psychotic, you know, etc. But but nevertheless, I mean, I, I have sat in rooms with people who are looking at their hands and um, you know, and, or catatonic, and and my training is to study the feelings induced in me. In in that situation and begin to study uh, yeah. what it is that the patient uh, or the analysand is is getting me to feel. And uh, you can feel really sick. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of masochism uh, involved in, in, in being an analyst, actually. So you've got to yeah. be ready for that. But, um, but it is a, yeah. a very different way of, of working and to watch a person emerge from total narcissism to an interest in the outside world on their own terms, right. not... We're going to cut it off if you don't look, you know, and, and if you don't leave the house. But actually, when you're ready to leave the house, there is another in the room. When you're, right. ready, to, when, you're ready, when you're ready to turn your head, when you're lying on the couch and take a look, which, you know, I've seen with working with very regressed patients that they take a look. Maybe they don't say anything, but something's happening, that there's the, the small registry that there's another that exists, and I'm existing with this other. And right. it's, it's a beautiful right. and uh, fragile process. It, it keeps you in touch with how fragile right. uh, we all are, really. But No, that's, that's fascinating, actually. But to get back to what you said, the darker side of what you said about a little <clears throat> necessity of a certain masochism. I mean, I think a very crucial, and that's when I said the intractability of the dark side, which is great about Freud, and which I think a lot of 
thinkers recently and some feminists and some queer theorists mm-hmm. uh, are a little too pastoral for my taste. That true, is, true. Just, if we just got rid of all these bad ideas, we'd all be great, you know. It's like cognitive behavioral therapy. Think good thoughts. I'm like, exactly, but I want to think exactly. bad ones. <laughs> well, I think we should, you know, we should rethink things. But at the same time, there's going to be something aggressive and murderous and violent and and in in all of us and there's also going to be something inevitably masochistic i mean in the freudian body i talk about masochism as an evolutionary conquest you know human infants need a lot of they can't manage by themselves for a longer period than other animals so what do you do you know to survive a period when you're helpless when you're helpless against the flood of stimuli coming in uh, which are very painful, but you can't, you don't have an ego to deal with them right. yet. Um, and my idea was that, uh, and it sort of, it joins an idea of Jean Laplanche, the French psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. that, that masochism has to play a role there, that there has to be a certain pleasure in the pain and overloading of the inner mechanism that the infant is experiencing, and it helps him to survive that period of helplessness. A certain pleasure in the overloading of, you know, the apparatus, the inner apparatus, in a way. So, but the the, the important thing is, how can we redirect masochism in the kind of useful direction you were talking about, mm-hmm. rather than in the murderous direction, which is both suicidal, and or is turned outwards and becomes murderous. Right. Right. It's a very, very important question. It's a, right. yeah, the struggle to sort of bring, I mean, in, in drive theory language, it's like, you know, to, to create drive fusion. Can you get, can you create drive fusion, you know, of the wish to, the wish to murder and the wish to, you know, to be connected and to be disconnected? How do you fuse those two impulses? Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's. Yeah, no, I'm very interested in, 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 in what you're calling drive theory. I'm just, I just wrote something about that, you know, that little passage in Freud about uh, what is the drive at the beginning of instincts and their right. And it's fascinating because it really, you know, psychoanalysis is about the body in a very important way. Yeah. It's about, it's about, you know, this sort of uh, traumatic messages that the body is always sending to the psyche. Right. Uh, how do you interpret them? How do you, what do you do with them? And uh, we have a tendency to deny them. Uh, or to, uh, you know, to make something negative and destructive about that. But it sounds very interesting. Have you read, you've read uh, Didier Anzou's uh, The Skin Ego? I'm gonna, I feel like oh, I should yeah, say, yeah, you've read, yeah. yeah, so I mean, that, that's, that's <clears throat> some interesting stuff. But you probably, I mean, I, I would recommend that you get, get a copy of, uh, if you're interested in, in the way in which I'm trained to work, the last names are Spotnitz, uh, Hyman Spotnitz, who's the founder of the school, and then Phyllis Meadow. Right. Um, Hyman Spotnitz was kicked out of New York Psychoanalytic. They didn't think that he was analyzable, but he was rather, <laughs> rather he worked rather well um, with uh, sch- with schizophrenics. And he developed, in fact, a, not a theory of the mind so much as a theory of technique. So we have very interesting technique, which under which of course has embedded within it a theory of mind and how a mind. Um, for lack of a better word, I'm just saying mind, but how, but how a mind unfolds and develops um, with its mm-hmm. capacity to, to tolerate or not tolerate um, otherness. This was um, terrific. I really, uh, it, was, it was great to talk to you. I, this is Tracy Morgan. I'm signing off um, for another edition of New Books in Psychoanalysis, and uh, we are very pleased to have Leo Bersani here with us today.